This is a session on the space, neurotech, far history and far future technology trees at Fawcett Vision Weekend in France. We asked our favorite contributors to produce a note of the technology that they are working on, the enabling technologies that are crucial in its development and what they may unlock. This one is with Samuel Bucher from Bismarck Analysis, Anders Sandberg from Future of Humanity Institute, Stuart Armstrong from the Future of Humanity Institute, and they discuss the long history and what's in store on the very long run. We're really, really happy to be joined by them. Samo is a Fawcett Fellow, and so is Anders, and Stuart just joined us as a mentor. So please enjoy this mind-bending session. My work at the Future Humanity Institute is trying to think about how to think well about the future. And actually, we have been doing a bit of work on tech trees. Indeed, I would love to work together with some of you maybe on making actually a proper academic paper about tech trees as a methodology. So the important thing in this case is that this shows up in quite a lot of different domains, and that is automated manufacturing. Anybody who's played Civilization Alpha Centauri knows, knows that once you get this, then you're in the end game. What the really interesting possibility here is, is that can we actually take assembling of products from an assembly line, from the human-based thing, from 3D printers, and turn it into a flexible tool? In order to, for that to happen, first, we actually need a big database of products, blueprints, basically if we could get all the IKEA and our plans for how to put together furniture and maybe all the Lego sets on how to put together Lego machines and actual technology as a training set. Because you need to combine this with machine learning, both in terms of computer vision, but also training up dexterous robotics or 3D printers to actually construct the systems. Probably if we had a good enough database of products, we could start training machines in virtual reality to build them. That's an interesting and tough machine learning project, but it doesn't sound out of the line of what people like uh, OpenAI or DeepMind would be already interested in doing. Once you have uh, the virtual assembly going, you might want to check that against reality for actual physical assembly. Uh, we also need the robotics for this. Right now, we have little robot cells that are uh, relatively flexible. We have 3D printers that represent another cell of robotics, but it's not quite as flexible, but can actually make uh, arbitrary structures. We probably need to combine them. And I know there are some efforts going in this direction. If that gets combined, when we have a way of making at least certain sets of products in an automatic fashion, uh, you basically feed in a blueprint. It figures out an action plan for doing it. Why is this useful? Well, we can make a lot of products, probably not as effectively as uh, if you build a mass manufacturing system, but you can use this to build the parts for a mass manufacturing system. It's very useful when you need small series, uh, like up in space. And this is kind of essential here for the space settlement aspect, uh, uh, because you basically need to automate mining and uh, production in space, because uh, generally you want to have this happen in vacuum or with few astronauts. It also has a lot of interesting effects on emergency and recycling. In fact, the reason I came to this particular node in the tech tree was reading a criticism of undisassemblable products and this manifesto that we need to design for disassembly. And I realized that if that is going to work for this in a recycling, you need to automate it because we will not have a time to do good in disassembly. You need to leave that to robots, which means they need to know how to disassemble our coffee makers and other products. But if we can do a proper disassembly, then you can also do an assembly. It's essentially a reversal operation. In the long run, of course, this is a precursor for actual and uh, atomically precise manufacturing and more advanced force. But if we can't make it work uh, for Lego sets, we are not going to make it work for molecules. So this is why I think it's a kind of crucial node. It's relatively near term, but we can start working on building that database, figuring out a good way of getting enough data and then starting the training on it. What's that about the right length of a response about the node? Thank you. Thank you so much, Anders, for this first run. That was one of your many slides. Next on we have Anita. And I'm really happy to have you know, at the late introduction. Anders Sandberg is a fantastic, fantastic, uh, um, yeah, senior future of He has not only um, produced, uh, what he's producing, one of the, I think, the books to, uh, to, 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 
to include all of the books that he's going to be writing on grand pictures. So if you ever want to have a book that where individual books can be chapters too, then uh, please feel free to grab the editors apologies. Uh, and it's still quite a good, it's still published yet, but it is really, really fantastic. So editors, I think to me, one of the more optimistic, more inspiring readers uh, uh, that are out there. And we're really fortunate that you both have expertise in the retained editing space uh, and just seeing uh, another, uh, another text slide here. Next one up, we have Anita. And Anita has uh, actually and worked with Brad and We had the community again. And she was the deeply available and innovation in new technology. In the next year, Brad and her uh, will be co-chairing our project um, new tech. And so she'll give you a little bit of an overview of what you can expect from new technology, BCIs, and whole range of relations. You go. Okay. Thank you, Alison. Uh, so I will, I will begin with whole brain emulation since that is largely my focus and the, the tech tree that you see here. Um, whole brain emulation is essentially asking the question, is, is everything that functions within our brain, uh, something that must rely on biology? We, we are developing prosthetics for a number of other parts of our body. Um, and that it, it, it logically leads that it could include the brain and a number of neuroprosthetics are beginning to be developed, and uh, our focus is on doing that for the entire brain. Uh, so the the things that, that have to be considered are uh, scanning technologies, how are we going to gather the data that is essential, uh, that's going to be needed, and then how do we get from that to uh, the function, to the things that we care about that, that would need to be modeled accurately um, on another substrate. And um, as far as this neurotech note, we will be exploring things like whole brain emulation, but we'll also be starting with uh, neuroscience fundamentals um, and uh, working through uh, neural algorithms, as well as looking at technologies like neuroprosthetics and neural arrays, uh, as well as how uh, neural algorithms could perform AI. And uh, we will take a look at some of the uh, more experiential parts of what it is to be human. So the questions of consciousness and illusions and how um, how we perceive ourselves. Um, but anyway, back to uh, whole brain emulation, that, that is the sort of technology that would enable uh, a potential future where we are not necessarily dependent on uh, what evolution has enforced on us and uh, that we can open up the opportunity to uh, greater exploration, to augmentation, um, and to a longer uh, beneficial, or sorry, longer term survival of our own species. And if we do so ethically, um, it can be a, a very beneficial future um, where we have access to far more knowledge and uh, far more capability. Ah, and... I'm rambling a little bit, but um, is there anything I should elaborate on? No, there. Be, okay. I mean, uh, I'm particularly really interested, especially in uh, in uh, you. You have maybe interested in the ethics problem as well. And we just had Randall on yesterday for uh, an interview, and I think that you know one really interesting thing and one thing that we need to get better at is really moving in and creating more interdisciplinary community between ethicists, between most um, of the policy-focused uh, researchers and, and people working on technical areas, because I think that there are still some bridges as in really across all technologies, but especially in the newer tech world, because there's lots of interesting developments, as I think we'll see throughout the day. Uh, well, right, Stuart, would you like to share a little bit about the tech tree that you're building? And I'm trying to bring it up online, but if, if I give you, a few, uh, I'll give you a few questions from that. What is it that you're working on? What is an exciting end goal and a this field? What are the opportunity abilities that stand to be on top and a challenge that you want always to solve? To answer all your questions there, I'm going to start by talking about strawberries. Um, Eliezer has a thought experiment where it says, get a super intelligent AI to copy a strawberry cell by cell and do this in a way that doesn't kill everybody. <laughs> If we do imagine a really powerful AI that's doing this, then we have to put a huge amount of human values into it just in order to ensure that this is safe. We don't want it to make the coffee of the cell and make careful sure that it doesn't disrupt the orbit of Jupiter at all 
that just inadvertently wipes out humanity in order to do this. So there is no sort of do this safely and carefully that doesn't include human values. And when you start thinking about the AI's actions, its consequences about the future, the things that can cause to happen, the things that if we prevent happen, all these weird possibilities that we haven't conceived yet and that we can't judge yet. We, our values are not yet developed. We haven't encountered these situations yet. Like the first time we encountered the trolley problem. It's, the trolley problem is basically when being nice, being good, and saving people that normally are pointing in the same direction, suddenly they're at cross purposes. And the future is going to be full of these kinds of problems. So in order to have even something that does something as simple as cutting a strawberry, in a safe way, with all the influence it can have over the future, it needs to not only know the human values that we are have, but the human values that will develop in these all weird situations. And that's the minor problem that we're going to solve. Uh, it, uh, so I'm working at the very modestly titled Duke of Humanities, as does Anders, and uh, setting up the even more modestly entitled Aligned AI at home cell. The... Is my spot there? Oh, okay. okay. <clears throat> um, the chief thing is actually this value extrapolation. Getting... Starting from some trading set of this is good and extrapolating into situations where the very concepts that this was defined on stop breaking down. Um, the AIs at the moment, when they tend to do this, they tend to go for a paper stripping style solution, a very generated, very wire headed option. Uh, but humans are capable of extrapolating uh, our value into new areas in non disastrous ways. It might be contingent, it might be this way or that way, but we tend not to go, hmm, actually being lawful and being good are not the same thing. Hmm, let's destroy the world. So this, but the equivalent for an AI is generally let's destroy the world, because that's the outcome of every uh, simplifying AI process. So how do we get this standard extrapolation? And where's that's the research thing where we're starting to analyze it? I won't go into too many details, I'll just give you something to get the flavor. There is a thing called coin run based on Mario uh, level. Oh, just use this <laughs> based on Mario levels where you jump up and down and you win if you get to a coin all the way to the right. That's that. Is that on the mic? Anyway, um, and when you do, when you train an agent on this and you do a new level where the coin is somewhere in the middle, then your agent tends to ignore the coin and goes straight to the right. That's because in the training data, that is a perfectly valid interpretation of what you're given. It could be go to the right, that is how you win. But it could also be take the coin. So the first challenge is to make sure that the AI sees all the different ways that it could be winning. So if, for example, we show them videos of happy humans, one way to interpret this is we want to see more videos of happy humans. And that's disaster. But you could also interpret it as we want to see more happy humans that are then recorded in videos, which is much better. So this kind, just knowing that this is a possibility solves a lot of the alignment problem, gets rid of a lot of the paper clipping uh, uh, aspects to it. And there's a lot of complicated other stuff, and some of it is in the slide that may appear one year. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I think I'll shut up there for the moment. Thank you so much.
companies had a crazy walk already through some manufacturing, some of newer tech, and some, some of AI stuff here. I know that I think you also both together co-authored a paper on accepting uh, the universe fast on space yep. races. Do yep. you want to share a little bit more on uh, future in space, yep. perhaps? Yeah. Mm. Well, Stuart and me have a paper called Eternity in uh, Six Hours, where we basically estimate that uh, we need about an afternoon of sunlight to settle the universe. You need a little bit more than that, actually. You need uh, to disassemble Mercury into a little Dyson sphere, not even a complete Dyson sphere, in order to accelerate space probes that can move over into galactic distances and arrive in the remote galaxies build Dyson spheres there, send up probes to all the stars. But this is mostly a demonstration that if you have self-replicating technology and uh, you, you have space access so you can be, get a, lo- a significant amount of energy on our current scale, then actually spreading the kind of patterns of uh, information that makes up uh, our machines and the plants on a literally universal scale is surprisingly doable. We don't need astronomical resources to settle an astronomically vast volume. Uh, so the main point of that paper was to show that this is relatively easy. We can't do it yet, but compared to the resources in the galaxy and the length of the future, this looks like it makes the Fermi paradox much harder. Then I have a long series of papers about the Fermi paradox. But going back here, the assumptions in that paper was, of course, can you actually automate manufacturing in space? Well, that's very related to my question, of course, about uh, automated robotics. Uh, that can, of course, be used with itself as a blueprint. In order to even get there, we also need to solve some other important problems, like the, the security problems. So nobody takes over my Dyson sphere and uses it to make a spam instead of settling the universe. Uh, there is an interesting issue about how to manage the risks there. And going even further back, do we even know how to make the threshold for settling space low enough that we can start doing the trial and error that's needed for actual space engineering. Because right now the problem is that everything sent into space is so expensive that we do endless testing on Earth and really pray and hope that everything is going to go right. Uh, but in reality, most of the engineering knowledge we have has been happening in workshops where people have been banging things together and it's usually failed in embarrassing ways, but nobody gets to know it because they then just melted it down and tried again. And after a while we get a product that works well enough. You need a lot of trial and error to get many technologies working. And as long as space is, we must uh, first have it perfect before we can use it, progress is going to be very slow. We might want slow progress, for example, when it comes to very powerful AI. This is where we want Stuart to succeed before uh, somebody else succeeds in making a very powerful AI. We want to have a safety measures there, uh, right? Because if you you only get one try to unleash superintelligence of the universe, But when it comes to space, we probably actually want to have lots and lots of trials and things blowing up in amusing or horrifying ways before we eventually can figure out how to do it. And that's also the pathway that then leads to making self-amplifying technologies that you want to keep under relatively tight control because at a certain point, you will be able to span the universe. So that uh, I think it's important to recognize that these tech trees are kind of on a continuum from the very near-term stuff. Some of the practical questions like, how do I get a database of blueprints for things? Can I steal that from Ikea, perhaps? Over to, can I train a deep learning model on that? Over to, if we can have automated manufacturing, what does that do to our stability of the global economy? Over to further steps like, can we put this into molecularly precise manufacturing? Over to, well, what should we reshape the accessible universe into? All big questions. Stuart, you have a few comments. I just want to make a meta point that I am not a cosmologist or an astronomer, nor is Anders. Our paper does not have anything particularly deep. We have the rocket equation. We calculate the gravitational binding energy of Mercury. There's a few other trivial things. I get to do the cool geodesics where I used my differential geometry knowledge for the first time. Uh, But it could have been done otherwise. That was not really necessary. So all that we really did there was put together lots of knowledge that already existed just to sort of find out this one problem. And no one had done that. It could have been done 10 years, 20 years, 30 years before. Um, So there are a lot of really important, interesting things, well, maybe not a lot, but there are some 
really important, interesting things there where progress is doable and doesn't, you don't need to discover new stuff, just you just need to put together stuff that's already there. Similar, like, what do you guys think of uh, Gravy Aliens and, uh, and, uh, and, and Robin's new research on this? Because you guys also, mm. like, the dissolving the Fermi paradox yeah. came from, from FHI as well, and yeah. now with Gravy Aliens, there's so yeah. much stuff happening. Can yeah. you can bring so, so, so I must admit I'm slightly cross at Robin in a friendly way. Because I have this chapter in my vast book uh, about grand futures, about uh, alien intelligence. I'm essentially laying out all the stuff that was going on in all my papers. And all the pieces are there to reach the conclusion of grab aliens. And I didn't write it. Now that chapter is going to conclude with it. And then there is this paper by Robin Hansen that kind of puts together the rest of his chapter into a fairly plausible idea. I don't know whether the grab alien argument really works. Basically, it's based on observation that this kind of vast expansion looks like it's possible. Maybe not every civilization does it, but it looks like in the long run, the parts of the universe that can be reached will be settled by those civilizations that want to settle it for whatever reasons there are. We're in an unsettled position right now. That means that we can actually do a bit of observer selection theory and calculate a little bit about um, the distribution of where we should be in time compared to the other aliens. And then you get a very interesting self-consistency argument that suggests that, yeah, uh, they might be out there, they might be about a billion light years away, but the universe is kind of getting filled up relatively soon by cosmological standpoints. A billion years is still slightly long for us on a human scale. Uh, now, this argument, there are various interesting weaknesses and issues we can go on about, and I don't think this is the right forum for it. But I think it's a beautiful example, again, of taking up pieces, putting them together in a very clever way. And Robin is very clever. He's actually able to see pieces people are lying around and putting it together into these outrageous new theories. I think we should be all looking around to see what's the most outrageous thing I can do out of the standard theories of my field. Yeah, and I think Robin, Gravity uh, Aliens tech tree is what, like, on some of these tech trees around here. So check it out. It's definitely quite mind-boggling. Um, I have a very simple point on Robert's yeah. paper. The arguments are correct. The conclusion is wrong. Ooh, okay, <laughs> wow. Um, and the, when you go to the anthropics, you should get quite subtle. But the main thing is it's evidence that humans are unexpectedly early. We are quite early as life comes. And the only real way of getting that to work is if we have some sort of panspermia. The Earth is not an early Earth-like planet. The Sun is not an early star. If we are unexpectedly early life, that means that life probably had to evolve and take more than four billion years. So it has to start somewhere else and come to Earth. That, that is, I think, the thing you can extract from Robin's paper. Um, we have long-term disagreements about our tropics. Uh, you can talk about this more, but... That's the positive thing. Yeah. So first go out, we go all the way in the future, and perhaps now during the reverse way round, Samuel can bring us all the way back into the past. Samuel's a fantastic historian, also Fawcett senior fellow, and really brings a really great historical lens uh, to many of the uh, to many of the technologies that we're working on. I think often context is the thing that you know we're sometimes lacking when we're just creating the technologies as if as, as, as if there were has has been no yesterday. So. Can you share a little bit more about the technology tree that I'll be giving around uh, as you'll be presenting it? Um, here to go. And I, then hang up. Okay, I think this is a this is a, a nice little symbolic token. <laughs> <laughs> you have to uh, talk. Yeah, this is this is no longer a technology, right? This is a, a scepter. It's a symbol that I'm supposed to be speaking. And one of the things that's very interesting to me is that we imagine technologies existing in a vacuum. But most fundamentally, all technologies, at least for now, are tied to human behavior. This means that every material technology that you might see on that tech tree has a complementary social technology. If a society is not complex enough to support a material technology, it's not reproduced, right? The technology might even be lost. We might imagine human history as an unmitigated ratchet of progress, ever accelerating on a smooth, nice exponential curve. I'm not going to dig into the question whether our own post-industrial society is of this type, 
But it's undeniable that previous civilizations, agricultural civilizations, were not of this type. We have many examples of technologies that are invented, widely used for centuries, and then lost as the institutions of society failed. To give you an interesting example, right, one that might shake your assumptions about history, the most well-known society that have risen and fallen in the Western context is the Roman Empire and the sort of Greco-Roman world that preceded it. Of the technologies used there, it's often said that they did not have meaningful automation, that they didn't use non-human sources of power. We've known for decades that this is not the case. We have archaeological evidence and also written accounts of the use of water power. Water power, not just, you know, to ground flour or to power, you know, to to power an iron forge, but water power used to power saws that cut marble, right? Marble stone, if you imagine it being cut. Powered by water somewhere in the forests of Germany, this sort of near the frontier of this uh, society. Why are they cutting marble? They're cutting marble because they're exporting it all over the Mediterranean, right? Why are they melting huge amounts of metal? Well, again, they're exporting it all over the Mediterranean. They're using it for military purposes. How much metal are they digging up and melting? Do we know? Actually, we do know. Uh, from Greenlandic, I, no, really, really. From Greenlandic, uh, from Greenlandic ice samples, we have samples of the atmosphere over the last 2,000 years. And instead of a nice, smooth, exponential graph, we have a graph of air pollution that's much more uneven. We have a nice spike around the time that Roman society rises, that it's building up its economy, a nice decline, and another rise. You know, my challenge to people's imagination is, are we really that exponential curve that escapes towards infinity? Or is all of this conversation vastly premature? And we're that little blip of lead pollution that goes up and then goes down. And as trade breaks down and the politics of the Mediterranean breaks down, there's no reason to cut marble because there's no reason to cut tons and tons of marble. There's no need to maintain that water-powered saw. And because no one's built that water-powered saw in decades or centuries, eventually we forget how to build them. So uh, the modern analogy, right, that I might finish with is, you know, you do need a market of hundreds of millions of people around the world to amortize and support the cost of sort of a single modern chip fab. And where that demand to collapse, where those global trade networks to collapse, the technology would go with it. Thank you. Well, okay. What do you think? Any questions, comments? We've taken from newer tech to uh, all the way historically to um, it's symbolic. We've regressed technologically just now. Yeah, yeah. I'm actually curious. Are there in this audience any like uh, space engineers or people from space agencies, or we didn't mention? Where? Where? What? No, I mean, are there? I mean, because I see that Future of Humanity Institute represented the space, so we don't have uh, people from space agencies. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, generally, Europe doesn't have that much of a space program. Although, of course, Ariadne Space now uh, boldly says that we're going to outmask Musk, which I believe when I see it. Uh, but, but generally, uh, space is an interesting area because it has so high thresholds of entry. Uh, so it's worth noticing. It's worth noticing that we don't. Well, this is still okay. Just a token. It's uh, but. Okay, if it's working, then I'm delighted. Um, um, so I think actually the Apollo program is a beautiful example of what Summer was talking about. Uh, we actually have lost a lot of the blueprints from the rockets and we can't build some of that yet. Uh, now, that fundamental understanding has not been lost. Uh, one could recreate it with some effort. Uh, but it, it is an example that the assumptions going into the Apollo project were of such kind that they were strongly linked to these social behaviors. This is also why technologies that are more everyday 
tend to survive better. Um, so there is, uh, of course, Gibbons in his Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire. He actually has a point about this uh, very technology thing. And he argues that when a society becomes simpler and collapses, you lose out of the super fancy artistic technologies uh, and, and the very advanced ones. But the ones that find the everyday use, the village smith, the metalworking that you actually need to run a medieval village, that thrives. And he was happy and saying, well, this is a ratchet. This is going to keep on building up. The question is, of course, whether this is true, because it might be that the number of people you need to maintain some of the more advanced technology are much bigger. So we might need to find ways of encoding this efficiently in automation, in other technology, so even a smaller group of people can manufacture more things. This is where I think automated manufacturing is quite important. But then getting over to neurotech, we might think about our medical system, which is also amortizing across an enormous number of people. We need the data from a lot of people, and we need kind of the medical customers of billions of people to pay for the healthcare and medical technology. We might want to figure out ways of making this more robust too. Yeah, you had a few, uh, you had two more technology trees here. Yeah. One is on reopening of critical period, right? Yep. Uh, so, so that is just a small part of, uh, I happen to have a, a whole bunch of tech trees about, uh, human enhancement uh, lying around in my laptop. But, uh, so yeah, I just picked one at random. So in this case, we have these periods uh, during, um, uh, development where our brains are very flexible and picking up on how to walk or how to learn a language. Um, and the, it looks like they can be reopened. We're already discovering a few things about that. Now, therapies that could do this would be super useful for improving language uh, learning. Maybe I could get the flexibility of learning a new language. Maybe this might be a very good form of rehabilitation. It might also have some very sinister uses for reprogramming of people. Uh, but it seems to be a quite powerful way of making us more adaptive in the long term. Uh, the other one, that was about close to ecological life support systems, which are obviously useful for space, but also obviously useful for making sustainable agriculture on Earth. And for disasters. Uh, and here I think ecological design is something we need to become much better at. Right now, they're custom made. And I think we're going about the research about closed ecological systems totally wrong. Either it's a main thing like NASA studying an ecosystem with three species in it, or you get Biosphere 2, which is vast, impressive and inspirational, but also not, was not very good as a scientific experiment because it was trying too much at the same time. I think we should just want to say we want to solve this problem because it's going to be useful for a lot of things in a scalable way. So I can decide how big is my ecosystem going to be? And then I can get from a computer a printout. This is what you need. This is how much plants. This is how many ants you need. Okay. Navi, yeah. I actually went to Biosphere 2 for a, a New Year's gathering that we had. <laughs> it was very interesting to see both the social experiments and and uh, and that uh, constructed with uh, with also just people trying to literally survive there. Um, okay, you have done quite a lot of research on agriculture. Do you want to say a few words on, on this? Well, uh, historical agriculture, yes. Nothing. Modern agriculture, less so. Um, I would return maybe to this argument about the fragility of technological systems versus which systems do in fact okay. progress over time. Uh, you mentioned... Um, medieval blacksmithing. Mm. Of course, medieval blacksmithing is already based on iron as the primary metal of use. When your most basic material, your most basic metal of society was rather bronze, which requires extensive trade networks to bring together copper and tin, which for a variety of reasons tend to not be found in the same, you know, geological formations in the same mountains. At that point, Really, it doesn't matter if every village had a blacksmith. Eventually, you just ran out of bronze. And the bronze did require this fancy society-wide system, at least these trade networks spanning the Mediterranean. We actually don't even know where around 1000 BC, uh, the Near East, that is Egyptian civilization, Assyrian civilization, Hittites, the Mycenaeans, we don't know exactly where they got their tent from. The two candidates we have are sort of the mountains of Afghanistan, and the British Isles, both of those just feel like so tenuous a connection. If you imagine sailing, you know, at 1000 BC and you, you bring this, uh, you know, tin and your entire society rests on this, on this really fragile network. So, okay, maybe because iron is more common, you know, we find it everywhere. And when it comes to agriculture, 
we've had very agriculturally productive civilizations. Uh, I think that, you know, when you look at the compensation that an unskilled laborer, uh, you know, can hope to receive as measured by grain, the most productive societies are modern society and ancient Sumerian society. Actually, the, you know, Greeks and later Romans and so on, their agriculture seems to be less productive than the sort of very first agriculture of those well-irrigated, fertile plains in Mesopotamia. There are numerous times in the history of Middle Eastern civilization where the very centralized irrigation systems that enable agriculture fall into disrepair, and as a result, population goes down as well. Smaller scale agriculture. Well, I honestly think that that's just part of the package of human behavior, right? So perhaps at the very dawn of civilization, what's happening isn't that, oh, someone invents agriculture, domesticates wheat or something like this, right? Perhaps always humans cycled between hunting, gathering, fishing, but also small scale farming, right? There's an article I have why civilization is much older than we thought. I'm not going to go into the full archaeological and anthropological argument there, but suffice it to say it's uh, the images of Homo sapiens as man, the gardener, right? The human being actually switching between hunting, gathering, fishing, and farming as needed. But that the, the crucial breakthrough was perhaps these irrigation systems and systems of organization. So, okay, that's, that's what I did with your question on agriculture. Yeah. I hope it's, <laughs> hope it's good. Okay, we had a question already here. Oh, yeah. Stuart, you make a comment and then we have a question here in the back. Oh, um. Go for it, Stuart. I have a question too, so maybe they should ask it. Oh, oh, you have the microphone. You have the handle. Okay. <laughs> uh, I'm just thinking about sort of a big difference between the Zayn and the Roman collapse. It's, robots could do lots of things and do it well, but a Roman league <laughs> Legionnaire is basically not that different from a barbarian with a spear to go for the stereotype. So the return on keeping Roman civilization is relatively low and when the cost was high. But is it our return on Roman civilization? Well, I'm what they can say, if you have today a group of people with a heavy machine gun in a bunker, they can defeat arbitrarily large number of Roman legions. So it's there, and agriculture is also this industrial scale, and we might get the um, construction uh, mechanized construction. The basic thing is that preserving these technologies is so valuable uh, compared with the decay, uh, compared with losing them. That I think that even if there is sort of a society collapse, uh, there will be a very different dynamic because the groups that can preserve a bit of these technology which just have so big an advantage over those who don't that I suspect the dynamics might be quite different today. May I respond? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Uh, to give, to give a response here, um, I would just, my counter argument would immediately be the irrigation systems, right? Because you noted the return on, say, Roman civilization. Well, one of the returns on Roman civilization was, uh, you know, basically extorting a large amount of taxes from Egypt and maintaining Egyptian and North African agriculture, including all of the relevant, uh, you know, all of the relevant waterworks, which were a significant investment and did also have a significant return. Rome itself could not feed itself, right? It relied on being fed by Egypt. So really maintaining those was a matter of life and death. It really was. Um, but the more fundamental response I would give is that all of the modern technologies we think of as extremely productive are technologies that are viable because of their economy of scale. One of the most underrated secrets of industrial civilization is that the more demand there is for a finished product, the cheaper that product becomes. In other words, more, the more people that want a car, the cheaper it is to make each individual car. This goes contrary to, say, demand for, you know, a fixed resource like land, right? Where the more people want lands, the higher the price of land gets. Or, you know, the more legions you uh, build to take the land from someone else. Uh, and I really do feel that if you imagine small groups 
preserving very advanced technology, you're perhaps not really taking into account ultimately all of the labor that has to be amortized, that, that has to be spread through this like vast demand of millions and millions of cars. Like, I think even if you took the most talented group of people in the world today and tasked them, you know, you guys are going to have a monastery. It's going to be the monastery of Elon high up in the Tibetan mountains. Generation after generation, you're going to rebuild Teslas. And because Teslas are so valuable, you're going to conquer the world, you know, riding on those Teslas and with your AK-47, you know, uh, you know, be playing Genghis Khan, but, but eco-friendly Genghis Khan, right? <laughs> I know this is a, this is a dystopia. This is a fun dystopia. But the point being, I don't think such a monastery is possible. I think it's impossible to build a Tesla in a monastery, no matter how smart the people were or how good their tools were. I mean, perhaps literally nanotechnology. Yes, but nanotechnology would be a unique and interesting addition to human society because it would be a self-replicating technology, yeah. right? After all, you know, if I forget how to build the Gigafactory, and note the Gigafactory is the real product, not the Tesla, right? Whenever you have a car factory, a car factory has in it at least a 100 machines, each at least as complicated as the final car that it's producing, right? So, I might forget how to build a gigafactory, but humans, right? We don't forget how to make cows because in a basic way, we don't make cows. Cows reproduce themselves. They're sort of green nanotech, right? As our seeds, as our plants, as is everything else. And, yeah. Okay, we have yeah. a question at the back and then I want you guys to finish off with the challenge that you want others to solve for the tech tree uh, that you built so that we tie it in because afterwards, um, I gave out the physical nose of the tech tree around if I can get them back, because then we put them actually on here, and I want you guys to add yours too. Um, and so I would love the ones that I gave out as to get back. And uh, you had a question over there, Rita? Yeah, I had a question about the whole brain simulation. So where are we now at, at this point? And what will it take to make it actually like serve the society, become useful for medicine? That's an excellent question. And I, I think Anders also may be qualified to, to answer this one. So I'll, I'll keep it, keep it short. Um, there is work being done in neuroprosthetics. Um, it is not as highly sophisticated as maybe we might hope. This is definitely a long road, uh, sort of project, but the, uh, the output of that project it could be a game changer. Uh, it, talk about existential hope. You know, the, it gives us a shot to really, really go far into the future. So it's worth taking the time to do it and do it well, I think. But I'll, I'll, I'll let good answers. Okay. I'm going to be on the more technical side. So the, the kind of classic scenario for brain emulation, uh, I laid out in the old roadmap, which is now totally ancient and we need to totally update it. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, but basically there are three pillars. You need enough computing power. You need a way of scanning brains. You need a way of taking that scan and turn it into something that runs well on uh, the computer. Moore's law uh, is undead as usual. Uh, we still seem to be getting enough computing power, uh, even though we're having interesting issues with what kind of chips is running it. The scanning technology has been going forward amazingly well uh, since we're sitting there dreaming in 2008 about what if we could actually take a small cube of brain tissue and scan it and make a three-dimensional uh, re uh, reconstruction. We're all dreaming about that day, and now Kenneth and the others are actually doing it for real, and it's working. We're actually getting the full drosophilia brain. Interpreting that scan and turning it to something runnable, this is the area that's been most slow, and this is tricky. And that is also what worries me, because getting back to your question about socially useful scenarios, imagine a scenario where we get better and better computers, we have scanned entire brains, we have big data centers full of the scanned human brains, and then eventually we figure out how to t interpret that and run it. Bang. We have in, uh, basically human brain emulations that can run very fast and you can multiply them a lot. You have a societal disruption that's going to be disruptive. On the other hand, imagine that we actually figure out how to simulate those drosophilia brains. We're getting our in the virtual drosophilia and a fruit fly flying around in our supercomputer. That's cute. There's going to be nice scientific publications. Next year is going to be a slightly smarter honeybee. Then it might even be in some small fish. And gradually, as computing power increases, it's going to be larger and larger. It's going to be obvious where the trend is going, and society will actually have a chance to start preparing and doing something. 
the ordering of technologies matter a lot in this case. And the problem is the technology that is hardest is understanding how to interpret brain scans, even scanning for the right thing. And this is unfortunately up to us neuroscientists to figure out how to do and probably make a list of stuff we need to figure out before we know which scenario we're heading for. Because that's going to be important to make sure society can withstand the introduction of brain emulation. I actually have a paper about how brain emulation could be dangerous. I'm generally in favor of brain emulation, but there are quite a lot of scenarios where the disruption is too much. And we need to be careful about trying to push for a technology that makes new technologies safe and get them earlier. That's why we want the AI safety before we have really powerful AI. That's why we want to have safety for self-replicating machines before we have a lot of self-replicating machines. Well, actually, that's a great, uh, I think, you know, point of maybe do with clothing because I, I would also be really curious for you to speak about just the um, the relationship between the whole brain relations potentially and AI and AI safety. Like, is there what, what kind of connection do you see? Uh, a positive or negative one, like uh, just up up for grabs and uh, perhaps make that a, a clothing to a challenge that you'd like others to solve. Uh-huh. So. Just minor subjects. <laughs> minor subjects. Wrap it up in a few words. Whole brain I have a whole paper about how it's very difficult to predict when AI, AGI might arrive. Possible. Nobody's any good at it. Here's the theory why everyone's terrible. Here's the evidence why everyone is terrible. So you really can't predict it. But whole brain emulations are different. Um, the timelines you have are much firmer, and they're still quite some distance away, I believe. So, the most, at least 50% chance is we get some form of API before we get whole brain emulations, so it's irrelevant in that way. The way in which it could be relevant is if we get so-called neuromorphic AI as we get closer to whole brain emulations. Basically, as we can imitate parts of the brain in computer, we can string these together to make AGIs, make AIs, and there, that would just be, this would just be like a slight acceleration for AGI. If we actually get to all brain relations before we get general intelligences, that's completely different, because now we have really smart machines that think like humans. All the standard alignment problems are different. Because instead of, normally for an AI, you don't need to worry that it'll be corruptible, for instance. You need to worry that it might be the universe, but you don't need to worry that it might be corrupt. For a human in, in a machine form, you do need to worry that it'll be corrupt. You don't need to worry that it'll paperclip the universe. Mm-hmm. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> um, do you want to? Oh, I was just so curious. So if you're doing whole brain emulation, Will that come along with personal preference based on whoever it's emulating or the brain system? Yeah. So yeah. this one would have its own tastes and therefore personality. Would that also come, I guess, with consciousness and thinking that it is the same as the person or like continuation of? Probably if it works, yeah. From where they started, at least. Like obviously, the other person yeah. would be able to learn, and I don't know if it would cross over, but it would be like starting over in a new avatar. Mm-hmm. Spot one. That seems most likely. Um, I wish to conclude there. So I see sort of three key challenges for us. The first one is something called inner alignment. Know what this is. It would be lovely if you could solve it for us. If you still know what it is, well, doesn't uh, don't worry about it. Um, but something that should get solved for uh, alignments. The other thing is, well, basically we're ramping up. We're going to work on these. Things. We have a list of uh, research projects to do, and we're going to be doing it. But we'd love it if people competed with us and got there first in various areas or stuff like that. So, due to this kind of research, or that's would also be something useful. Uh, other people were doing that. Oh, race and safety. Yes, race and safety. <laughs> and arms race to safety. <laughs> You must get there before we do. Quick. <laughs> and the last issue is the issue of deployment, because it doesn't matter when Hamlet is no one uses it. And we have part of our business plan is to address this and start deploying in various ways. Uh, but this is going to be a challenge that we could do this in Hamlet with it.
Lovely. Three very concrete challenges. So, well, you know, my most relevant challenge would perhaps be even related to whole brain emulation or, uh, you know, alternatively, sort of biological immortality or something of the kind. I think that the saying that, you know, every time a great mind dies, you know, a library burns, we should take that much more literally than we usually do. For the vast majority of human knowledge is stuff that we can't actually explicate. It's tacit knowledge, implicit. It's sort of the intellectual dark matter behind exceptional skill. You know, for for every great mathematician that died, I'm sure that the vast majority of those thoughts on mathematics were never put pen to paper or, you know, marker to whiteboard. Can we imagine what the compounding gains of uh, 500 or 600 years of normal human genius might be? I don't think we do. And I think it would be Remarkable to see that. And honestly, if that happened, I think ultimately that knowledge would be powerful enough to uh, stop civilizational failure, civilizational decline. Thank you. Do you have any extras? Well, I I guess I I do want to reiterate the translation issue. Um, It it is one of the topics that will be touched on in the Neurotechnode coming up in 2022, and uh, Kodak Hobbes will be doing a workshop on it as well. Um, So, uh, yes, this is work that I hope that that those of you who are are interested in uh, neuropreservation, scanning, and modeling um, would be interested in taking up to try to see it. Can we get the, the function from the structure? Can we figure out how to, um, model this properly? But additionally, I, I would say thinking about, uh, the ethics of it. I mean, we have potential here to make ourselves less fragile, to make our civilization less fragile, to make, um, our species something that can continue and grow in a completely different way. Um, but that also means the risk is is very high um, of doing it wrong. So thinking thinking of how we can do this in a way that can benefit humanity along the road. So that means you know, making perhaps thinking about BCIs that aren't necessarily going to be so invasive uh, that we harm each other, and uh, then thinking about how the civilization can exist to to uh, create. Uh, going off of what you said, I, I suppose um, if. How do we maintain our autonomy? Um, and how do we then augment to go beyond without necessarily losing ourselves? So questions like that, I think, um, are, are things that should be considered and the conversation could continue on. Do you have maybe three keywords for the slides that you created? Individual uh, challenges? Uh, 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 don't get me started. <laughs> I, I'm going to be uh, interrupting anyway later on. Thank you. And you're totally interrupting later on. Head over the All right. Thank you so, so much. This was, I think, uh, yeah, quite, quite good. Did this conversation pique your interest? Maybe it even inspired a bit of existential hope about the future in you. Search for Foresight Institute on YouTube or Twitter to stay up to date or visit foresight.org to learn more, subscribe to our newsletter and join our efforts. We are entirely funded by your donations. So please support us if you like what we do. Thank you so much for listening.